Better Call Saul Season 2 Episode 7 is over, but we are just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the guys who are certainly sheep, not wolves. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Speak for yourself, Rob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm a wolf. I, somebody said the wolf in sheep's clothing. Like I've heard that expression, but don't they mean a wolf in like sheep's skin? Like why clothing? Sheep don't wear clothing. Maybe you are a wolf in like very colorful clothing. Yeah, always. Absolutely. <laughs> no doubt about that, Rob. All right. Well, we are ready to talk about episode seven of Better Call Saul, Inflatable, and only three episodes left. There's only two episodes left until the Better Call Saul finale. Yes, only two episodes left until the finale. Yep, that's where we're at right now, Rob. (laughs) So we've got a lot to talk through on a night where we saw both uh, Jimmy and Kim plot their exits from their respective law firms. Uh, We also saw Jimmy go through a variety of wardrobe choices and ultimately uh, getting back to that uh, familiar Saul Goodman look and then retiring back to uh, where he started off the series back at the nail salon, plus uh, some intrigue with Mike, but really a uh, much more supporting role for Mike uh, this week. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that happened with Mike this week, there were no words spoken, just one kind of quiet, calm scene, but it shows where Mike's head's at right now. And we'll definitely talk about that, that when the biggest scene for your character is a, a wordless kind of 10 second no dialogue scene where you're just watching something uh i I still it's still a huge scene that's the kind of show this is the kind of show you know what i mean this is sorry this is the kind of scene that this show does so well just a 10 second scene of of uh, you know impending terror okay well we are going to talk through all that and much much more plus answer a bunch of your questions here on the better call Saul recap podcast you could subscribe make sure you don't miss an episode the rest of the way go to postshowrecaps.com slash bcs itunes or subscribe to post show recaps in your favorite podcatcher all right antonio how you doing this week i'm good i'm good rob who's your favorite podcatcher is it travis darno <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, yeah Travis Darno podcatcher uh, is uh, sometimes uh, doesn't work right. You know, yeah. <laughs> as uh, it's frequently prone to uh, rebreaking. Yeah, and it's low. It's it's average isn't exactly on par with what it should be in terms of what it puts out. But you know, I'm doing good, Rob. I'm doing good. Probably better than you, considering some of this Mets stuff that's going on. But it's baseball season. About to start, yeah. Rob. Hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it uh, too much because hopefully by the time we uh, get this podcast posted on Tuesday, there'll be you know uh, less intrigue uh, surrounding uh, Matt Harvey's mystery illness at this hour. All right, but let's get into talking about this episode. So uh, where do you want us to begin, Antonio? Let's begin with that cold open, Rob. What I think some people are saying is the best cold open in Better Call Saul history. Uh, Whoa. And- yeah, whoa, bold words, but yet I'm 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 trying to think of other better call Saul cold opens, uh maybe Rebecca, uh, some of these other kind of pre-credits scenes that we've had with flashbacks like the Chicago sunroof, but this was a really really good one, Rob. This was young Jimmy. We got the the another thankfully not Bob Odenkirk playing himself <laughs> yeah. at 10 years old, right? Like we'd speculated. Yeah. Right, like Tom Hanks in uh high school and Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, or just some kind of like uh, Ben Button uh kind of thing going on. Buddha Bennett tweeted at us and said, "Were we surprised they didn't have Bob Odenkirk play himself at 10?" Uh, we had kind of joked about that. I was so but- relieved. 
very <laughs> relieved. There was a lot of negativity that could have come into play there. So they recast young Jimmy. That's great. Uh, we get the kind of clear flashback to the the father's store that we heard about in the story that Chuck told Kim at the end of, at the end of the episode a couple of episodes ago. So here we see the very store and the very father that Chuck was holding out to be this pillar of the community. Uh, and we see young Jimmy slipping into some uh, some uh, adult magazines and slipping into some bad habits here, Rob. Right. And when we had this conversation back in that episode, we talked about whether or not you felt like that this was actually a true story, whether Chuck was on the level. I was buying it. You thought that maybe there was more to what Chuck was saying. How did you feel like with this context now? Do you think that there was more to that? Or do you think that really it was that Jimmy stole $14,000 and ultimately that was what put the store under? It may be one of those rare circumstances, Rob, where we're both right. Uh, I think that the, the scene very much made clear that Jimmy was taking money from the cash register. We saw him do it. Uh, we saw him do it only after, though, his father was taken as a mark by a, you know, a hustler, uh, a, a wolf, the guy who said, you know, there's wolves and there's sheep. Figure out which one you are. And Jimmy recognized it. And Jimmy says in this scene, Rob, it's the same thing that happened to you last week, he says to his dad. Mm-hmm. Like you were you were taken, you know, as a mark and all the people in town know that you're a mark. And to me, that means that this is something that his dad regularly engaged in. Uh, giving money out of the cash register to people, you know, or giving products to people when they needed them or listening to every sob story. This is something that his dad did over that same period of years that Chuck said the receipts didn't add up. So even though we saw Jimmy steal money out of the till, we also saw and had established the fact that his father was a repeated mark for things like this. So it seems like like anything else in this show, it's more gray than black or white. It's not that Jimmy is ultimately the source of the entire 14K, but it's not like he's completely innocent in the matter either. So you think that it's some combination, the missing 14,000 in that Jimmy is taking money out of the register, but also that Jimmy's dad is also anybody that's coming in like, oh, hey, I'm a Nigerian prince. And if I could just get if I could just get a hundred dollars that I could get that money wired to me, I just need to go to Western Union and pick it up. So if you could just give me one hundred dollars, please, yes. I can go take care of that and I'll give you half of my money. Man, how much of a different scam was that in person before the days of email that was a a much more difficult scam to pull for sure like oh you're a prince and you said nigeria right um why do you look like you just came from uh, northern canada like this doesn't add up so yeah yeah, jimmy's dad is like your royal highness it's my honor to serve you and to help you out you don't even need to give me half of your money here just take the hundred dollars and i would just you know it'll help me to know i've served the uh, good prince of nigeria yeah maybe send me a postcard from nigeria when you get back home that would be a nice thing you could do for me. But please, it is my honor and my duty as an American to serve our allies in Nigeria. I'm happy to help you. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, why don't you call the embassy? I don't know. We're not going to get into that. Just take the hundred dollars. Yeah. So this is this is Jimmy's dad. And by the way, great casting job. Sounded like Bob Odenkirk. Looked a little like Bob Odenkirk. I almost thought it was Bob Odenkirk playing his own father. <laughs> That's what they should have done. They should have done like the Marty McFly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bob Odenkirk playing his father in this scene. Yeah, and then his mom comes in and it gets really awkward. Yeah, we could have that happen for sure. Mom, mom, is that you? Yeah, but we, I mean, the, it's a great first scene. I, it, it's really good because not only does it harken back to the story that Chuck told. So we didn't realize at the time that that was foreshadowing for a flashback scene that we were going to get. Now that we've gotten it, though, I think it's great because that that conversation with Chuck does mean uh, a lot, a lot more. It means that Chuck maybe never thought for a second that his own sainted father could have been responsible for any of that shrink or loss and blamed it all on Jimmy wherein the truth was somewhere in the middle that Chuck is, is of a, it has these kind of polar views of Jimmy. He is, he is at his core, a rotten person. He is all these things. And so Chuck sees every action Jimmy takes through that negative lens, instead of seeing it through a lens where there's a lot more nuance or room for debate. I think it's fascinating too, because uh, Rob, what did you make of the fact that Jimmy knew and sniffed that con out before his dad, I mean, for a minute, I thought we might be getting the origin story of when Jimmy learned to become a con man mm-hmm. because we see him coming in and telling the story. But it's clear Jimmy's already streetwise, like he's sharp. Not only is he lying to his dad about reading the Playboy, but he sniffs that that scammer out when he walks in the door. Uh, and so this is a Jimmy that has already kind of maybe this is at his core, his true nature who he is more so than this is an innocent Jimmy that we meet. He's not innocent. This scene more than anything establishes, look, even at this age, Jimmy McGill is a little bit, uh, a little bit, you know, he's a normal kid in some ways, but he's still taking money from the cash register. Right. He's like a kid who's like this musical genius that hears rock and roll for the first time. He's so, so, you know, here's the bagpipes really for the first time. It's like, Oh, that's, I could play that beautiful music. Yeah. And it's interesting because we don't, you know, as far as the run of Better Call Saul goes with uh, with the Cicero activities, as well as with the activities we see at the bars that, that Jimmy and Kim have run and things like that. We don't typically see Jimmy conning or or Saul McGilling or slipping Jimmying the people like Jimmy's dad. We don't see him conning the people like the Sandpiper people. In fact, those are the people who he wants to help. Uh, he's taking less money on his wills. He's actually getting a lawsuit together in order to help them. Uh, we don't see him really taking advantage of those people throughout the context of the series. And so even if he is like, you know, like a musical genius who hears rock and roll for the first time, he's still not the kind of guy that takes advantage of the people like Jimmy's dad. And I think that that's interesting. This scene reminded me, and I'm sure it reminded others of the, uh, of the of one of the scenes in the, the beginning, near the beginning of the departed, uh, where Jack Nicholson kind of sees a young, uh, character that is meant to be Matt Damon's character, uh, and really st- sort of preys on him as a, as a matter of course, like just realizes that the kids from a struggling family starts giving him groceries. And this is the beginning of Jack Nicholson's relationship with the Matt Damon character that ultimately leads the Matt Damon character to be part of Jack Nicholson's criminal enterprise. And so we see him taking a seemingly innocent kid and preying on him. That's not what we see here because the Jimmy that we see here, it's not really that innocent. He's streetwise. He's already got that slipping Jimmy in him. So I think that that's, that's fascinating that they made sure that we knew that about Jimmy in this scene, that this wasn't his origin story by any stretch. So the line that the grifter, how did I end up learning that word? So the line that that guy ends up saying <laughs> to Jimmy is, hey, there are wolves and there are sheep in this world. 
figure out which one you're going to be. And I do feel like thematically, this is probably a pretty common line in a lot of these AMC shows. Yeah, uh, very much so. You're talking about the wolves, Rob? Is that what you're saying? Well, I just feel like that overall, like I do feel like that this is almost the theme of The Walking Dead in terms of like, hey, now that all the trappings are gone, are you a wolf or are you a sheep? And I know that there are literally characters called the wolves on that show but i do feel like that at its core that's what the walking dead is about that now that you know crap has gone down which one of these two things are you i think that jimmy also learns this lesson here from the grifter yeah are you a predator or are you prey like where Mm -hmm. do you where do you slide on that chart i think the other thing that's interesting about that line of course is that this is sort of representative of the struggle of jimmy mcgill that we see in the show uh, is he going to be a sheep, follow the rules, do what everyone does, go along to get along, keep his head down, just follow the leader, be shepherded through these various ways and uh, kind of professions or whatever it is? Or is he going to be a wolf? Is he going to be the one with the, that takes advantage of things, that cuts corners, that is proactive, uh, that feeds himself rather than just waiting to have sustenance provided to him? Uh, and I think that that is ultimately the struggle that we see on the show. Uh, and that's really the, I mean, that's almost too on the nose to have that guy say that to Jimmy McGill, figure out which one you're going to be, because that's what he's struggling to do over the course of Better Call Saul is figure out if he's okay being a sheep, what he calls a square peg in this episode, or figure out uh, if he wants to give in to those wolfy aspects of his personality. And that ultimately is what Jimmy is dealing with in this episode. We're going to see him now engineer a way out of being at Davison, Maine. And I was really curious to get your take on this, where we had like this whole montage that comes after he ends up seeing the inflatable. What do you call those things? I I wish there was one word for them, Rob, rather than like inflatable uh, arms thing. I don't know. Sweet D's. Can we call them sweet D's? Isn't it's always sunny tribute? Uh, No, I don't know. I don't have a word for it. Inflatable guys. (laughs) Those inflatable guys. Uh, There's a funny Conan uh, YouTube video that he does with these things. Uh, I think like that there's a family guy episode uh, with these things also yeah and like i said it's always sunny had a had a lot of really funny material with d dancing around like one of those guys it's also something that's popped up in better call saul before uh so and and i mean the inflatable kind of tricks are something that we know is in saul mcgill's repertoire uh within statue of liberty or different things that are going on there but we actually saw one of these inflatable arms guys in cicero when jimmy went back to cicero in in season one uh, to kind of go back and visit Marco and, and all of his old stomping ground. So this is something that is uh, catches Jimmy McGill's eye for sure. Well, what is the significance of that in terms of Jimmy? I mean, I took away from it tonight where he's dressed rather loudly. He's wearing like a red shirt and a green tie. And that's where Jimmy gets the idea for, you know, these, uh, you know, bright colors. But the idea of the inflatable dancing man, what does that have to do with, Jimmy McGill's character. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what you said. I think it inspired him to kind of uh, dress differently, at least in that way. But it's also, I mean, you, 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 we, we know 
one of the issues that Jimmy had with the Davis and Maine commercial that ultimately ran the, you know, the one with just the weird kind of techno background and just the, the plain voiceover and just the dialogue on the screen is that there was no style to it. He liked the style and the panache and the flair of his commercial and that kind of style and panache and flair we know is a hallmark of the Jimmy McGill character. He's got this sort of kind of uh, showy uh, element to what he does. Uh, and it doesn't always present itself in everything that he does, but it sometimes presents itself in his courtroom manner. Uh, it clearly during the Breaking Bad era comes to present itself in the way he dresses and the way his office is presented so garishly, with the Constitution written all over the walls and the Statue of Liberty and everything. That's part of his general aesthetic is to be showy like that uh, and to kind of be this sort of dancing idiot uh, in a lot of what he does. It's something that even in the, the black and white first gene scene, uh, from the uh, the Genesis gene scene from the first season, we see the reflection in his glasses of the very colorful uh, and uh, you know flare based, but you know Saul Goodman ad. So this is something that is very Jimmy McGill uh, kind of nascent Saul Goodman. This is something that appeals to him. This sort of showy thing for sure. Well, you know the inflatable, wacky, waving arm guy. Yeah, good one. I mean- <laughs> In terms of what this is, it is something that is designed to just catch your attention as you're driving by, as opposed to when we go back and take a look at that Davis and Maine advertisement that really upset him. It's the most boring thing that would never catch your eye. And I think it's sort of appropriate that this sort of thing that's just loud and obnoxious is that what he sort of says like, oh, yeah, that is the type of advertising that appeals to me. This is what I should base my entire business on, sort of loud, obnoxious, colorful, attention-grabbing. That's how I will find customers. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's something to be said. By the way, I believe they're called air dancers or sky dancers. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm trying to remember. I know I heard a podcast about these things at some point on like another <laughs> podcast, like 99% Invisible or something about design. And uh, there's just some, there's like one person who invented them and, and is now considered to be the scourge of their profession because they brought this just horrible thing onto society. Uh, but no. It sounds like a This American Life episode. It could also have been This American Life. It's something like that. But, but anyway, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that it isn't so much that this air dancer or, or seeing the kind of inflatable flailing arms guy, which I prefer to air dancer anyway. Uh, it's, it's not like seeing them makes all un- unlocks all these things in Jimmy and makes him think that's it. I'm done. Like, here's my I'm, I'm now Saul Goodman. That's it. I'm Saul Goodman. Now it isn't so much that it's, I think just seeing that. And I'd love how you see it reflected in his car window as he's looking at it. Uh, and it's presented almost right next to his face in that reflection. I think he can, he's kind of looking at what could be a different image. And, you know, by the end of the episode, he's not really wearing those outlandish suits anymore. In fact, when he goes to meet with Kim, to propose to her about, you know, maybe they should join forces and, and create a law firm. He's wearing a very subdued professional suit. He's in fact changed in the very same day. Uh, and so I'm not sure that this flailing, the, these flailing arms have inspired him to completely change who he is, but I think they certainly do stir in him these ideas of what he would prefer to be when it comes to pitching himself, presenting himself to the world, drawing attention to what he does. I think he's more likely to be that guy. We know he becomes that guy. Uh, and so this is more representative of that for sure. But he does have those 
suits still at home. Just oh, yeah. in terms of going to pitch Kim, though, I think he is aware of like what would be the right clothes to wear to pitch her on being his partner. Right. And I think I think that's really what it what it more more than anything what it comes down to is that all of these things are manipulations. They're cons. They're ways that he can kind of get over on people. And so to some people he might deliver a beanie baby. To other people he might wear a certain colored suit. To some people he in fact in Breaking Bad, he mentions that he changed his name to Saul Goodman so he sounds like a Jewish lawyer. Uh, because to some people they want a Jewish lawyer. So mm-hmm. like th- these are the kind of cons that Jimmy McGill goes through life kind of putting forth. And the suit is one aspect of that. He's going to put that suit on in public or when he has to be Saul Goodman, but it may not, he, he may not, he may recognize that it's not the ideal suit to always wear or to, to put forth to the world. So it will be interesting to see if we do go uh, into kind of a, uh, you know, McGill law firm going forward where he's a solo practitioner what does he represent himself as? Is he wearing those suits every day? Is he wearing the subdued suits? Does he modify that? That's not even a color theory thing to track so much as it's just a, what's Jimmy McGill presenting to the world with this outfit kind of choice? And I think that we're going to see him using both of those choices, I'm sure, going forward. So Jimmy ends up pitching Kim in this episode about this idea of going into business together, that they were going to be partners in a law firm. She says no initially, but then she has the meeting with Schweibert. And so uh, we can talk through all that more in uh, greater detail or drill down any of this. But the upshot of it all is that she comes back to him and pitches him on the idea of how about this? Two of us separate under one roof together. Do you think that this is an idea that could work? Well, no. I mean, I, I mean, I think it could work in terms of like, yeah, they could do it. Like, right. I, we, I just, obviously, we know it will not work because of where Saul Goodman slash Jimmy McGill ends up. But do you think that it is something that has a possibility of lasting a little while? Well, I have some interesting thoughts about that. Don't let me forget, by the way, uh, about in terms of ending up. I want to make sure we hit those in a non-spoilery way. But um, we, I mean, we can get into it for sure. As far as this idea goes, it seems doomed. I, I just. I think what what was really interesting to me about this, Robin, I would love to get your take on this because I'm not, my mind is not settled one way or the other. So following in a line, Jimmy kind of puts Kim into this position where he says, what's not to like about the other offer. He's kind of pushing her forward to take the Schweikert and Coakley deal to leave Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill. Howard is a bad guy. Howard, this Howard, that get out from under Howard's arm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's sort of what he's kind of, pushing her to do then he makes the pitch to her uh hey like you you don't want the that job you want to work with me let's do this we'll be under the same this is the second time he's pitched her that they he wants to be in business with her this mm-hmm. time it's a much more formal pitch it isn't you know it isn't quite negative uh, and we see ultimately where it ends up which is she's going to compromise we'll, we'll be under the same roof we'll share services we'll help each other we won't be a law firm so we can each operate how we want my question for you rob is as far as professionally, personally, all of it, is Jimmy bad for Kim? Is this really a bad relationship for her because of the, the directions that he's kind of pushing and prodding her in? She called that guy Howard accidentally, but it was almost like a Freudian slip. And the idea of that guy being just another Howard is something that's coming directly from Jimmy. So my question is like, is this some, is Jimmy just bad for her overall? And I don't, and if so, 
she's kind of circling the bug light. This is a bad deal for her wanting to go into the same roof as him. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I mean, I had the same thought about how, you know, the Freudian slip was really, you know, her realizing like, oh, you know, he's right. He is just another Howard. But you're right. In terms of how this is going to end, I doubt that we find out by the end of the series where Kim has gone off and been so successful going out on her own that she's just off doing her own thing successful somewhere during the events of Breaking Bad. That's probably not what's going to happen, right? I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I mean, this is not this is not a spoiler of, of anything. We've already talked in this podcast about how Kim does not appear in Breaking Bad. We don't know whether that means that Kim's not in the picture or not. For all we know, Saul Goodman, the character, had a great personal life behind closed doors. It just never came into the the context of the show. We never saw that one way or the other. I don't think there's a scenario where we say, okay, well, Kim is just operating her own thing in Albuquerque and we just never see her. She is either deceased out the game in another city, but she is not operating independently her own law firm in Albuquerque. Right. I don't think that's likely. And when you say out the game or, or in another city, I think we might be heading, Rob, toward a more likely scenario where we heard Kim in this episode say she's from the Kansas, Nebraska border. Uh, she, you know, she's from a small town. She just wanted to get out of there and get more. Let's say things go really sour between her and Jimmy. Something really bad happens. Mm-hmm. She goes like back. Going with she this. goes back to her hometown. Yeah. How far is she going to be from Omaha? And will mm-hmm. she come back into the story with Gene, uh, aka Jimmy, in Omaha, like we've seen at the Cinnabon? Like, does she end up coming back into the story after the events of Breaking Bad, having removed herself from Albuquerque at some point, and now she's in, in Omaha and she just shows up at the mall one day and Jimmy sees her, and that's a Gene scene that we're going to get. Oh my God. Kim survived the Breaking Bad timeline. She's in Omaha, and here's Gene at the Cinnabon. Do you think that there could potentially... Are you saying that there might be a happy ending at the end of Better Call Saul? It's entirely possible, Rob. Like I just think that the more that this show becomes the story of Jimmy and Kim, and the more that this show is about the relationship of those two characters, the more I do wonder... Well, why does it have to have an expiration date? I mean, they could kill her on Better Call Saul for sure. Like something that Jimmy gets into uh, with the with you know the wrong people could end up with with Kim getting killed. Like that absolutely could happen. It seems just as possible that she leaves the show because of something with Jimmy. Years go by, horrible things go down in the Breaking Bad timeline, and then they're brought back together because of fate or otherwise in Omaha. Maybe he looks her up, uh, and maybe that's a bad deal for him. He looks her up, and that puts him back on somebody's radar. Are, and maybe the the ending is not ultimately happy. Like maybe we get back into the territory where he's wanted and he's on the run and it's scary and all these things because he makes the mistake of looking Kim Wexler up in Omaha. I just think that there's a possibility that this story and their story will continue in the Omaha timeline of Better Call Saul that we've already seen. Yeah, I think this is a really great point, something that I wasn't even thinking about. And I think that we are most certainly going to be seeing a Kim Wexler in the at some point down the road. I don't think in in this season or like I think whatever like the final season is, I wouldn't be surprised if the opening episode has a flash forward to either Jimmy looking up Kim Wexler or her walking into that Cinnabon Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, 
I think the door is wide open now. We speculated last week about that Kansas City Royals shirt. I believe the Kansas City Royals uh, triple A teams in Omaha. Uh, and I, you know that she said she's by the <laughs> she's Kansas. She's going to triple A games? She's going to triple A games, Rob. She's a big, like, like any Royals fan, Rob, she's prospect obsessed. Okay. Like she knows <laughs> the names of their top 15 prospects front and back. She knows where they went to high school. She knows if they went to college. She knows what hand they pitch with or hit with. Like she knows all about them, like any good Royals fan, Rob. So uh, I'm not throwing shade. That is all the Royals fans I know are like that. So anyway, long story short, I think that there's a good possibility. She's on the border there. Uh, if she, if these events force her to go back home, uh, run away, if you will, and she ends up back there, that we see her back in that timeline in Omaha at some point. So what time frame is Omaha? Is it like 2008, 2009? I think it's about 2008. Are we trying to bring the Royals World Series into this, Rob? Well, you know, they're probably that journey to the 2015 World Series, you know, it's beginning sometime around then. I don't know how many guys in... Uh, triple a at that point in time but they're starting to get like a number a lot of like number one picks so maybe she could be going to a triple a game yeah it's entirely possible i mean that's i think it was like 2012 maybe 2011 joe posnanski wrote the sports illustrated cover story about how the royals are going to win the world series and then they come and do it last year so i think his prediction was like maybe one season too soon uh but it it, it probably did start around that time so who knows maybe Maybe, but regardless, I, I think it's a better deal if Jimmy's looking her up. Like, he knows he shouldn't. Like, he, he he's in the gene mode. He knows he's supposed to keep a low pro, not stick his neck out, not do anything that would draw attention. But he just can't help but look up old Kim Wexler and try to see where she's at in life. Yeah, uh, that's really, really interesting stuff. Um, In terms of Jimmy and Kim under one roof, though, I mean, the idea for the story to have them put them together, but not have them go into business together, that does seem safer to me and seem like a better decision. You know, you have to feel like that the idea of them being partners was going to go terribly. But what about this idea of them going and being under one roof together? How does that get her in trouble? Well, let's talk about what this show is kind of presented to us. At the beginning of the episode, we hear the, the grifter say, you know, decide if you're a wolf or a sheep. We heard Mike present his own version of that. When Mike said, you're either a good criminal or a bad criminal, you figure out which one. We saw Mike do what Mike really doesn't do in the Breaking Bad timeline and what other characters suffer when they do, which is execute a half measure by trying to take the safe choice, a compromise choice, by not going all in on the very kind of scary, dark choice that a person wanted them to make, but maybe dipping their toes in the water and splitting the baby. Mike is in the situation he's in with the Salamancas as a result of that half measure. To me, Kim's choice about let's try to go under one roof, but we're not going to be partners. We're going to be solo practitioners together. Uh, that to me is a half measure. That's her not fully separating herself from the Jimmy McGill, not going all in on the Jimmy McGill, but kind of splitting the baby and going in with the half measure. And on this show and, and in this canon, the Breaking Bad universe, half measures, Rob, no good. They don't work out. So how yeah. could this logically hurt her? There's a lot of ways. I mean, what could Jimmy be doing at the very premises if he's actually, you know, breaking the law, whether it's on the, the kind of premises or not? Uh, that could be a thing. He could be bringing criminal elements or he could become a target of something that could put their whole enterprise in jeopardy. Her clients, their clients, like Dr. Melfi with Tony Soprano on the run, seeing clients in a hotel in the Sopranos. 
like this very thing could be what's happening with Kim Wexler if Jimmy McGill gets into some really dirty business. Uh, there's also just a matter of like we know how he's going to want to decorate and we know how he's going to want to present in the kind of atmosphere that he's got at the Saul Goodman Law Office. That's not what Kim Wexler is going to present. She's going to be very professional. So there's the the design elements. Just I mean, that's come up on this show a lot. Well, Davis and Maine just looks like it's so dark and it's so different. And HHM is so bright and so organized. What's what, what's this office going to look like with their shared spaces? Like, how, I mean, tell me what this is going to be. Coco Bolo, everything, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It'll be blue on one side and then every color under the rainbow on the other side. Yeah, uh, just like you know, earth palettes, uh, you know, bright colors, just all of it. And Kim's just got very not Hamlindigo blue. We're gonna have like Wexler blue, right. you know. So I don't know. The one thing they'll be able to agree on is just in the lobby, just like a giant bowl of wicker balls that they'll say, okay, that's what. <laughs> we need that's exactly what we have to have yes wexler balls rob <laughs> wexler balls we'll we'll bring them right to the table and that will be fantastic yeah maybe some uh some, some foot massage uh stations for their clients certainly cucumber water will be in order i think uh for everyone there so i don't know i mean all the little decisions i, I don't want the show to be this i really don't i'm sure i'm not the only one who's saying this but every little decision that they could make could be subject to a fight that represents who they are at their cores the receptionist or a legal assistants that they're going to share that Jimmy wants to hire mm -hmm. may not be the ones that Kim wants to hire. Jimmy's going to want to hire ones that remind him of him. Kim's going to want to hire professional ones. Uh, I mean, it's just going to go on and on down the list. Everything that they share, everything that they do uh, is going to be a point of debate that represents the sort of differences between how they want to approach the practice of law. But doesn't Jimmy and Kim dating in one building having separate law firms, doesn't this sound like this would be like an amazing like 90s sitcom yeah exactly like too many cooks too many lawyers you know so that could that absolutely would be great rob uh, we'd need a wacky neighbor i think we need a wacky neighbor in this scenario uh, yeah. do you anybody like, in mind oh i think that uh for wacky neighbor i mean are we looking for somebody from the 90s or now oh man i'm thinking anybody that played wacky neighbor in the 90s is probably available i just saw al borland selling a you know retractable hose on a as seen on tv ad so i think richard karn is available rob if we well, want can we get karn. david cross that might be good Oh, David Cross would be fantastic. Yeah. So that would be, that, that's perfect. You've got it. But David Cross now, not 90s David Cross. Right. We want David Cross now playing the kind of wacky neighbor in the same building. Uh, he's a never nude. Uh, I don't know. There'd be a lot of possibilities there. That would be, but that's not the show. I mean, I just don't see, I just don't want that to be the case. I, it, it, there's so many fascinating things about this idea. And I can, so I can understand the allure of it just even in the presentation. Rob, did you know that a W for Wexler is just an upside down M for McGill? Did you realize that? My mind is blown. Yeah. I thought it was a slick logo. I like yeah, it. Yeah, it's really slick, but it really <laughs> totally represents their opposites and yet so similar. And I think that that is really a difficult thing that they're going to struggle with. When Kim is on the rooftop after she's botched the kind of calling Schweikert Howard, uh, she smokes a cigarette. And behind her in the background, red car, blue car. Uh, and it's just there are two cars parked right behind her, fire and ice, like right there behind her. And I, I just I really think these two, even in the ways that they're very similar, I think the ways that they're similar are bad for Kim. I think Jimmy pulling her in the directions that he's pulling her there. It's bad for her. I mean, I just really think that that this is not a good thing for her. And I don't think that because 
I'm assuming that it ends up poorly for her. I think that because she seemed to be doing well. She seemed to be on the right track. And whether she got the offer in-house or not, she can make a lateral move to another law firm, and maybe she's got a lot more traction there. So I just I don't see her going off the rails like I see Jimmy going off the rails. I don't see Kim as a square peg. I think Jimmy brings out the square peg in her, and I don't think that's a good thing for her. You know, in Jimmy's efforts to get fired from Davis and Maine, we see him go through all of these different things in the montage. And a big part of that is that he's going to adopt all of these different colorful shirts, colorful ties, colorful suits among the many different things uh, that he does which I don't know how much time you want to spend going into all of them, uh, including, uh, you know, not flushing the toilets, uh, playing the bagpipes, uh, making uh, juice in all sorts of different places. So the theme I felt like was, okay. well, we see Jimmy. Finally, he's trying to express himself more and more and more. And we have all of these colorful costumes that he's wearing. When we have the conversation between Jimmy and Kim about the type of lawyer he's going to be, she asks him, are you going to play it straight or are you going to be colorful is the word that she uses, which is, I think is an odd word to use to describe how he's going to be. And he tries to fake it for a minute, but he says, you know, I have to be me. How much do you think we need to be reading into the colors is when Jimmy is being Jimmy. Because I think that there's a lot of subtext there. Even going forward into the Genesis gene, I think that those are very desaturated scenes. And I think that when the life has been sucked out of Jimmy, I think that the color is gone. And when there is vibrant, saturated, overexposed color, like we see in the opening sequence often of this show, I think that that is when uh, that Jimmy is alive. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of validity to that. Or and Saul I'd- is alive. Whatever character you want to say. Yeah, just the, the colorful element of Jimmy McGill is alive and well. The part, the part of him that gives him vibrancy, that makes him stand out. And it's, it's interesting because, of course, Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill, they have to invent their own color, Rob. Like, they mm-hmm. call it Hamlindigo Blue. They patent it. Like, or they get a trademark name on their color. They have to invent their own color. Jimmy's a guy who can't help. He's almost running from the colorfulness of his character. I mean, that is almost what defines him in so many ways. And uh, it, it is fascinating that, uh, that that's the word. That's not an accidental word there. Uh, I think that, you know, we see those colors throughout the car with its drab tone and different colored door. Uh, Jimmy saying yellow is the color he picked. We see the kind of suits that he ultimately ends up wearing as Saul Goodman. I think that that color definitely represents, you know, pay attention to me. Notice me. What we don't know, and, and this ties back to the beginning scene, we don't know what the genesis of Jimmy having this sort of thing at his core was. We don't know why that's his id, uh, if it is his id. We don't know kind of the reasons why Jimmy feels the need to be slipping Jimmy, uh, to have that at his core, to be what Chuck describes as a chimp with a machine gun. We don't know why that's there, but we know that the way that that manifests is he has to almost preen like a peacock. He has to present himself to the world and say, I'm Saul Goodman. This is my TV commercial. This is my, you know, this is my bench. This is my branding. This is my suit that I wear that's super colorful. This is what I do. And I think the show does highlight that in a way where you're right. They oversaturate certain elements in the credit sequences or showing the kind of Saul Goodman stuff uh, as this oversaturated 
animated and not drab kind of gene life uh, where everything's black and white and so dull um, because he's had all the colors sucked out of him. Uh, I think that that really defines who he is as a character. And it doesn't even have to be one particular color, even though I think his opposite with Kim is red. He's all these things. He, like you said, he's very vibrant in his choices. So I think it is very much representative of who Jimmy McGill is at his core. Not necessarily why. I think that's a question the show hasn't gotten about uh, answering. They never answered it with Walter White on Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a this is certainly the the how. I think he really is like peacocking a lot of the time for sure. Yeah, and even just thinking back to those Cinnabon scenes, in my mind's eye, and maybe this isn't accurate, but it almost seems like those scenes are almost like black and white type scenes that you know there is some color, but the colors are so muted and so light. And I really feel like that that's the sort of like you can see that Jimmy is dead, basically, even though he is living, that the the character is dead. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, they really are almost in, in, entirely black and white. There's a, a kind of a weird tone to the black and white, uh, but the, there is some color in them. And like I said, the really biggest moment of them is when he he's in black and white with his drink that he's made watching his old commercials watching Mm -hmm. his Saul Goodman VHS commercials you see the colors reflected in his glasses I think you see a fire that he started as well reflected in his glasses and that's the color you get in that scene it's almost as if to say like that reflection of me is the colorful me the me that's sitting here in this reality right now no color it's all been taken out of me and I mean he's not even wearing like I don't even Cinnabon's colors are probably green but when he's in his apartment he's wearing like a an undershirt and boxer shorts he's not even wearing anything it's not like he goes behind closed doors and puts a Ric Flair robe on like he's very subdued even behind closed doors he really has all the color taken right out of him for sure yeah and also in that scene with Kim where he tries to lie for a second and she's like well are you going to be straight or are you going to be colorful he's like oh I'm going to play it straight I'm going to dot my eyes and I'm going to cross my and instead of lying to her he sort of like touches and twirls like the pinky ring a little bit and that was the Marco pinky ring which sort of reminds him like you know I gotta be me if I'm not me then it's not gonna work I'm tired of trying to not be me and I do think that that also gives some more significance to the events back in Cicero and you know he's like no I think that that's really the lesson from Marco in that you know he needs to keep that part of him alive no matter what he's doing yeah I think so and I think that that is that's sort of the talisman if you will it's sort of emblematic of that he wears that as a kind of just a, a a just a representation of Marco. It's Marco's ring. It's going to be with him always. Uh, that he's going to have a little Cicero slipping Jimmy in him. Uh, not just when he wears that ring. It's that's just a physical representation of it. But you're right. He noticed the ring, and I don't know if he noticed the ring, but he decided and decided to change his mind. But he does give her a little bit of a more of an honest answer. Um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't completely lie to her. He basically says like, you know, I have to be me. I I know who I am. You know, I know what's up. Like, I know what's going on. Uh, but I, I, I need, you know, I, I don't need you. I want you. It's like, I'm going to be who I am, but I want to be who I am with you. Uh, and Kim says, Hey, you've got me. Like, you don't have to have me as a business partner. Uh, you've got me. And I, I mean, I think that heck, he he won that meeting, Rob, regardless of whether he got what he wanted professionally. I feel like he won that meeting for sure. Yeah, 
I got you. Yeah. I, I see you. It's like Avatar. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. He says, uh, he says something. What I think his words were like, I have to be the kind of person I want to be. I have to go into this as me. I think for a lot of people who are probably frustrated and we can entertain some questions about that. I know we had a couple sent in. I think for people that are frustrated with this show, taking the time it's taking for Jimmy to get to be Saul Goodman. I think we're at a point now where Jimmy does have a realization of what he wants to be and who he is. When he comes back into that office and he records his voice message, he starts to do the brogue and you've reached the law offices of James M. McGill. But then he records it straightforward in his voice. He doesn't call himself James M. McGill. He calls himself Jimmy McGill. So he's got this sort of more confident, uh, more outgoing personality that he's embracing now as an attorney. He's tired of trying to be somebody that he's not. And I think that realization is a big realization for him, for sure. Yeah. All right. So we saw that Jimmy and Kim are now going to work together as solo practitioners together under one roof, not partners, but basically they're going to be doing their own things under one roof. Antonio, could you perhaps say the same about the characters of Jimmy McGill and Mike Ermintrout, that they are not partners together, but they are both solo practitioners under one roof in this show of Mike and Saul? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, we see Kim wanting that, right? She wants the partnership, solo practitioners under one roof. That's what she wants. And she says to Jimmy, say yes. I don't think we know that Jimmy's going to say yes, but it's funny because what Jimmy wants is he wants to be a little more in with Mike. Uh, not only is he going to give him a freebie because, you know, they're buds. I think he recognizes this guy could bring him some more of the interesting kind of clients that he's interested in. But Jimmy wants to just be under one roof with Mike. He wants to share that commonality. Look, man, I had a run in with Tuco Salamanca, too. I'm going to whisper this to you, but he broke a couple guys legs and he could have done a lot more. Uh, he wants to share that with Mike. He wants to be under one roof. Mike doesn't seem to want that, though. Take a different elevator, Mike says, and send me a bill. So Mike is not, you know, if, if Jimmy says that to Kim, like, we're not going to be under one roof. Take a different office and send me a bill. Like, that's not the answer Kim wants from Jimmy. And I think that Mike is giving Jimmy the answer Jimmy doesn't want from Mike and vis-a-vis their budding partnership or two solos together in the same enterprise uh, or under the same roof. Uh, Mike doesn't want any part of it. Mike wants to keep that line drawn. Send me a bill. Don't give it to me for free. We're not cool like that. Uh, and don't even ride in the same elevator with me. Like I, I don't want that closeness. Yeah, I really thought at the beginning of the episode that I felt like, oh, I can't believe we didn't think of this, that Jimmy would be Mike's lawyer when he goes to go talk about how the gun was his. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Now this is how Jimmy and Mike are going to be together. But then really we saw five minutes of them together and then that was really it. And then Mike went off back to do his own thing. And really it was a much slower Mike episode than we've seen from him really throughout most of season two. I mean, he's really had probably much more of the, you know, heart pounding stuff in this show this season, especially, and really uh, not too much from Mike outside of, you know, the last scene in terms of the action of moving his story along. But okay, let's just talk about uh, Mike with the gun stuff first. And so Mike ultimately with the help of Jimmy says the gun wasn't Tuco's, but it doesn't say it was his. Yeah. Eh, why? Why does it need to? You know, like this is difficult because that's not what Hector wanted him to do. 
Hector wanted him to say it was his and just get away with it because he's a cop. Mike doesn't do what he bargained for with the 50K. And I think it's important to put a pin in that because this is, again, Mike agreeing with a criminal to do a certain thing and then trying to do it Mike's way. Uh, and will this come back to bite him? I'm not 100% sure. But these the, the, the attorneys were certainly onto it. They said, did he threaten you or buy you off? And in truth, it was a little bit of both. But this is very difficult. This is not what Mike agreed to. Uh, And this seems to me to be yet another in a series of half measures. And it makes me wonder, Rob, when we get the scene later in this episode where Mike pulls his car up across the club from where he met uh, Hector Salamanca last episode. We see him kind of across from that business just watching it. Uh, Is he is he is something going to happen, Rob? Is he going to be the one? to put Hector in that wheelchair. Oh boy. You would think that there would be a sort of vendetta against my, unless they don't know it was him. You kind of feel like that this would not be something that would just sort of like, uh, you know, the trail would go, wouldn't go cold on that. I feel like with these Salamancas, right? Right. You don't, I don't think so either, but, but I just, I don't know what his end game is here. I'm not sure why he is watching this business. Like, what is he after? Like, what is the, what is the goal here for Mike? Is Mike going to try to work his way into their organization? Like, is that what he's after? If so, I'm not sure sitting across from the business, just kind of watching the comings and goings and the ins and the outs is the way to do it. I sort of wonder if he's trying to get the drop on Hector Salamanca and that's going to end in violence. Uh, and maybe, Maybe it's one of those things where, uh, where, you know, Uncle Salamanca or Uncle Hector can never tell who it is because he can't speak. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. It just, I don't know what Mike is up to here. But like I said, it's, it's a 10 second scene that is by far the most interesting thing that happens to Mike on this episode, uh, that he is watching the Salamancas for what reason? We have no idea right now, but it can't be good. Seems like a really big move for Mike to take out all the Salamancas between Hector and I don't know if he would need to take out Nacho at that point and the cousins. It just seems like, you know, more. I mean, remember, Mike didn't even want to kill Tuco. I know. I know. So I don't know what he's after. What I will say, and we had a tweet from our representative on the ground in Albuquerque, PJ. Uh, PJ said Mike's that new house uh, that Mike is buying. Stacy looks beautiful for Albuquerque. Good middle class neighborhood. Stacy's a con artist. Poor Mike. Love you, Bay. And so wow. the qu- the question is, are you feeling Stacy the con artist here, Rob? Is this are we are, is she just taking poor Mike? Is she taking him for every dime he's worth here? Yeah, it does seem as though Stacy is really bilking Mike here and she's like, "Oh, I know I sound like a broken record." And I'm sure that to all of us watching the show are saying like, "Really she's asking for more money here?" But to what end? I mean, what's next? Is she going to say, "You know, uh, I really need a sports car, Mike. You know, I really, yeah. uh, you know, the Volvo is not cutting it anymore. So uh, I really need a new car. Is it just going to be more and more and more? Or is this it with the house? Yeah, I don't know. And the house is beyond his means, by the way. She's taking him for every penny. And he's, you know, saying, I'll get more pennies. And the way we know that he can get them is to do this increasingly more dangerous and difficult work. Uh, we know the protection jobs he was getting, they weren't paying that much. He had a decent thing going with the playa, Mr. Price, only because he was doing the work of three guys. Uh, and that ultimately did dry up and Mike was fired in part because Price was tired of paying him to do the work of three guys. And so this is, it's difficult for Mike. If he wants to make the kind of money 
that Stacy really wants to live the life that she wants to live with Kaylee, uh, then Mike's going to get taken advantage of. And Mike getting taken advantage of is going to mean Mike turning to more and more desperate means for money. And those desperate means are going to bring him right into contact with some of those Salamancas. So maybe he's not looking to exact some sort of physical violence on Hector Salamanca. But maybe he's looking to rob that place. Like maybe he's looking to steal a stash of drugs uh, and to move it himself. I don't know what his end game is there, but I'm, I'm, I'm on high alert to try to figure out what it is for sure. Because it, it's all in service of Stacy having her hand out uh, with one of the other hands that she has in his pocket. Hmm. Could Mike be holding those guys up? Uh, I mean, I, that doesn't sound right. I, I don't know what Mike is doing. That's what I mean. Like, I think that maybe they're going to come and watch him. He's going to come and watch them. Like, do you think it's that he feels like, oh, the cousins, uh, that was, you know, bridge too far that they, you know, staked out the hotel. I know that Kaylee isn't going to be safe no matter what. So I need to take these guys out. Maybe. I mean, uh, it may be or it may just be that he wants to know what their what their operations are, what the size of their operations are so that he can get in at some level where he gets protection against them. Um, ultimately, if you'll recall, uh, in, in the, in the Breaking Bad timeline, um, Gus Fring does have some level of communication with those cousins. Um, he ultimately is the one who calls them off of Walter White, uh, with a text that just says Poyos. Uh, and so even though they're related to Hector and Hector and Gus are completely at odds, uh, there is some level of connection there with Gus and the Salamancas. And so the question becomes, uh, is that something that by getting by virtue of figuring out their operation, Mike can figure out who their enemies are, get in tight with their enemies and get protection? I don't know what his end game is, but I know that he's not uh, he's not doing it on accident. That's sitting there watching them. He didn't just say, oh, where am I? I'm going to pull my car here. Stop for a listen to some baseball, have a pimento sandwich. Uh, oh, look, it's that place I was where I was getting extorted before. Like, no, this is on purpose for sure. And the question is, what purpose? We just don't know yet. All right, Anthony, let's start to get into some of these questions that people had for us. Of course, you can send in questions every week. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. Plus, uh, you could tweet them to us as well. And then we also are getting them on Facebook, too. So where do you want to begin? Well, I think this is a good question because it's it represents something we haven't really talked about that much. This is from Brendan Sweeney. Brendan asks, do you think that Omar will show up down the road to work with Jimmy in any manner? They seem like quite the duo. This is Omar from Davis and Maine, not Omar from The Wire. Rob. Right, right. <laughs> He's going to show up with his friend Hap and uh, want to <laughs> talk to uh okay um i really liked omar i really think he's really really good and uh, yeah i thought it was interesting where jimmy's like gonna give him money feels like he's like a kid he's like well i gotta you know i'm gonna go home and see my kids so he's like a, a real adult as opposed to jimmy even though jimmy's probably you know an older guy than he is but no, I really like that character, but I can't imagine that we're going to see too much more from him in the future or Aaron or even Davis and Maine. Yeah. And it's a shame if this is the last we see at Davis and Maine because Ed Begley is great. And I thought the, the scene between Jimmy and Cliff was very good uh, where Jimmy Cliff is basically saying like, why did what, what did I do to deserve this? And Jimmy doesn't really say like, hey, this is what you did to deserve this. Jimmy doesn't say like, uh, you know, like we had a question from Joe P that said, why didn't Jimmy tell Cliff he was too heavy handed regarding the commercial and that he had Jimmy micromanaged? I, I, it's not really I mean, that's not really, I think, why why Jimmy didn't fit at Davis and Maine. Jimmy didn't fit at Davis and Maine because he never wanted to be there to begin with. Uh, and I think he's summing it up rather nicely by saying, 
I'm a square peg. I tried to work this out. It didn't work out. It's not you. It's me. He gave him the, it's not you. It's me. And for what it's worth, I think you're a nice guy (laughs) for what it's worth. I think you're an a-hole. Like I like the Mm -hmm. way that that interaction played out. It is a shame that we see that this is the last we see of Davison Maine. If it is, what I will say is I'm not sure that this is the last we'll see of Omar. Um, the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad universe is so great about pulling characters out and reusing them kind of from season to season or show to show. The realtor that we saw in this episode showing the house to Kim uh, or to Stacy and and Mike was the same realtor that was doing an open house where Marie uh, showed up to uh, play spoons, shall we right, say, right. Uh, in Breaking Bad. So I had forgotten about that. It was on the story sink. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, one of the all time worst Breaking Bad subplots and an all time great show. One of the dopiest subplots that they had. Purple Marie. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, uh, this is their minerals, Rob. I got to tell you. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is this is the show that does pull those kind of people. And when they have actors that they like to use, they pop up. We saw the DA from season one, Petty with the Prior, uh, show up really funny a couple episodes ago and say, and as a matter of fact, he had that great line about Omar. He said something like, you have a, I tell, you know, I'm sure you have a smoking hot assistant. And Jimmy said, I have a, it's a, he's a nice young man named Omar. And the guy's like, Omar, <laughs> like just the name Omar and excited that guy, that poor guy. So they use these same actors over and over again. I think that there's a reason why Omar showed up and, and carried the desk. I think you probably hit it on the head why it was Omar, which is that Jimmy saw Omar as just this kid when Omar's a grown up. Like Omar, unlike Jimmy, has got stuff figured out and he's working hard to feed a family. Jimmy doesn't have anything. Jimmy lives in a freaking nail salon, Rob. Like mm-hmm. that's his life. And Omar's got a wife and kids. So like you, Jimmy can look down on him or look at him as a kid or whatever. That's not true. Like Jimmy, Jimmy needs to look at his own life and realize not everybody's like me. Like a lot of people are, be, are growing up. I'm not, not everyone's Peter Pan McGill. Like this is what's happening. People grow up and make decisions and you need to figure that out for yourself, Jimmy, at this point. Just from a continuity standpoint, how long do you feel like the montage lasted of Jimmy trying to get fired from Davison, Maine? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we had, we had a question question from Ari Ferrari, whether that represented Jimmy getting stronger and leveling up to Saul Goodman. Uh, I think that if we saw that happen over a period of like six to nine months, that may be that kind of uh, segment or, or montage, that it may be like a ton of time is passing. You would see seasonal decorations in the background, things like that. That's not what's happened here. I think that that was a very kind of whirlwind sort of thing, maybe a couple of weeks at most where that was all going down. Because in the face of all that, Kim is still mulling right. over the Schweikert thing. So not a lot of time has passed for sure. A couple of weeks at most, I'd say. And you really hate to see Kim mulling over. And so I feel like that that would take so long for what Jimmy was trying to do. And then I felt like that the Kim story was no time at all really had passed, if not like a couple of days. I mean, maybe you could say maybe over the course of like 10 business days, this happened. But boy, in that montage, Jimmy wore a lot of different color shirts. Yeah, it's true, Rob. It's true. Easily, he wore 25 to 30 different color combinations in the montage. He also um, he also went to the bathroom enough times that it became a recurring problem, such that it needed to be brought to everyone's attention. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a series of things. That's not just a one-timer. Uh, that's a multiple-timer. Uh, shared bathrooms there. Aaron was looking. I'm not sure why, uh, but Aaron found that. Uh, she was always kind of looking in the garbage and looking where she shouldn't be. 
be for a dirty thing. So uh, unfortunate for her to uncover that uh, that incident. That was by far to me the biggest social transgression of what Jimmy was doing. Not mm-hmm. the noise, uh, the no flush. That was that was it. That was social terrorism at its best. But um, but or worst, I should say. But yeah, you're right. These things take time. Uh, we don't know exactly how long Kim took to call Schweikert back and say, I'd love to meet with the partners. You got to figure once she makes that call, you could schedule it a week or 10 business days out at most. Uh, but it, 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 a ton of time hasn't passed. So this is a very rapid montage for sure. Maybe it's occurring in the same uh, space time continuum as Kaylee is aging, Rob. Okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. So then uh, let's take a question from uh, Brendan Fitzpatrick who wants to know, have either of you intentionally gotten fired from a job? I was a dishwasher in high school. I got so sick of it. I intentionally broke dishes on the floor so my manager would fire me. Oh, boy. Man, bad Brendan. Yeah. Breaking Brendan. <laughs> Breaking Brendan. Yeah, it's the real Walter White. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, no, I've never, I've never, I mean, I've gotten fired from job before. I was a baseball umpire and I stopped showing up. Mm-hmm. So they told me I was no longer a baseball umpire. Uh, but I've never, I've never, I, I mean, I did that on purpose. I didn't want to be a baseball umpire anymore. Um, did you, I mean, did you ever get fired from it? Like, I, I, I will tell you, funny story. I can't, and I can't get into too specific of detail here uh, because I'm really barred by the ethical rules of my profession. Uh, I have assisted a client who was in a similar situation to Jimmy McGill mm-hmm. who wanted to get out of a job, uh, but didn't want to have to pay a reload bonus back, a relocation bonus back. So, you know, the goal is to get terminated without cause uh, and to find a way to get them to just be sick of you and let you go without paying them back. Uh, but to do it in a way that doesn't get you fired for cause. Uh, and th- so this is this thing that Jimmy's doing, I, whoever advises the show or if they did any research, uh, this is more commonplace than I think people would indicate. Is this something that you've done before, Rob? I mean, I don't know if I've ever been fired from a job. I'm trying to think if there's ever something. <sighs> I, nothing is uh, really jumping out to me. I mean, I've, I've been like laid off for, from a job, but not fired for cause or ever like trying to get fired. What about the Utopia podcast? <laughs> have i been fired from podcasts the, uh, i think the utopia one in specific that fox said no more like yeah, they we, fired utopia got fired I, yes. I didn't get fired yeah no not not by proxy you were terminated but not not, not by primary purpose no yes. yeah yeah now that's tough but sometimes look i know for a fact rob uh, in times of your life where you found more time on your hands because you were laid off uh, you turned to you know idle hands are the devil's playground right so you turned to podcasting uh, and you, you made something more out of it. So sometimes it's it's cr- about creating an opportunity for yourself if an opportunity doesn't present itself. Yeah, I became a solo practitioner. You did. Uh, you did. And, and podcasting, you mean. You're not talking about your arrangement with Nicole. You know, I, I'm <laughs> often a solo practitioner. <laughs> Whoa, we, hey now. <laughs> we, we are often, uh, you know, two independent people, uh, you know, going our, our, our own directions. That's yeah. often the case. Yeah. Well, I, I will just say I, I've not done it. Uh, I've not gone the full Brendan route, but I, I understand the desire to do that. I understand uh, people not wanting to pay back huge bonuses that they got. It's interesting. The, and I, I'll just a, a 10 seconds on this. You see Kim talking a lot about her law school loan. You see Jimmy talking about the bonus. In, in some ways, these things are like almost they indenture people to their employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the goal of them. Uh, that Some companies do it with deferred compensation. Some do it by 
floating you a no interest loan and having you pay it back like the the law school arrangement with Kim, which used to be a very common arrangement. And some do it with bonuses like with Jimmy. So uh, there are a lot of different ways to keep somebody working at a place where they may not want to continue to work uh, with deferred compensation or benefit compensation. And so this is a lot more common of an enterprise than I think a lot of people might think if they've never encountered it. Okay, let's take another email question. Uh, this is from Josh, not round Howard Hamlin. He wants to know, <laughs> not round Howard Hamlin again, uh, a different Josh, uh, wants to know, do you think that next season would be mostly focused on Kim and Jimmy's law firm? <laughs> and do you ever think we'll see a flashback to teenage Mike? Wow. Teenage Mike. We know that that can't be played by Jonathan Banks. That is, hey, that is out. <laughs> how are you guys doing? Uh, yeah. This, I love the school. Uh, aren't you sick of this teacher? Boy, that Elvis is really something. <laughs> how about the local sporting match that was on the television last night? Yeah. There's just no way to pull this off. Like you just can't do it. Uh, there's Would anyone just, like a sandwich. <laughs> I favor pimento. Uh, there's just no way to do this uh, in a, in a good way uh, with, with that. But it's funny. Uh, it, it, we, what, what would Teenage Mike, uh, Rob, if, if Teenage Mike showed up uh, and, and he was just on the show, we saw Teenage Jimmy stealing from the till. Uh, what would be the tell that Teenage Mike was very much like adult Mike? What would he do? Would he fire a slingshot at somebody? <laughs> Maybe there'd be like some bully in the school and he'd like stand up to the bully and like pick on somebody your own size. <laughs> no, seriously, hit me. Uh, that'll yeah. be good for you. It'll be good for me. You'll get a reputation and I'll get a reputation and it'll be fine. You know, I don't know what his half measure would be, if it would be a full measure. Uh, but yeah, he probably showing up listening to baseball on the transistor radio. I don't know. I, I, I don't want a next season of, of Wexler and McGill uh, sharing one roof. I don't want. Okay. That. Well, this is a good prop bet. So season three. Three episodes left in season two. In season three, at any point, are Jimmy and Kim under one roof with their respective law firms? I mean, I think there's a good possibility of that. And here's what I'll say. Uh, just tie these threads together for me, Rob, if you will. Think about how when Jimmy is sort of making the pitch to Kim to come join him as a con man, he's in the pool. She's not. She says, I can't keep, I can't help but think that I pulled you out of that pool. Like I pulled you out of where you wanted to be. Uh, and so we see Jimmy kind of get the con going a few episodes ago where he, he works Kim in and it's their first con together and they get all the tequila and everything's great. Ken wins, loses. But other than that, they're happy. Then when the, the next con they pull, Kim is the one calling Jimmy. Uh, and Kim is the one who kind of starts it and she pulls Jimmy into it. And so, again, that's a thing where Kim has said, I don't want to make you somebody you're not. And she starts to do the things that he likes to do or he wants to do. Similarly, with the law firm pitch, Jimmy is the one who originally pitches it to Kim in season one. He, again, in this episode, originally pitches it to Kim and it doesn't, you know, it's not going to happen. And then Kim comes back and pitches her own version of it. I think the through line in all of this is all of this is bad for Kim. And I think that we do kind of have to see it play out uh, for it to really resonate. Because what Jimmy, what Jimmy should say is, I'm bad for you. Like, that's a bad idea. I shouldn't pull you into my world. Like, I shouldn't be the one who introduces cons to you. Then then you're running cons. You're a professional. You worked really hard. You're a really good lawyer. Like, and you can play by the rules and still be a really good lawyer. That's what you should be. You shouldn't listen to me. Like, I'm bad for you. That Jimmy's not going to say that. 
So of course, mm-hmm. Jimmy's going to go with this arrangement, right? Because the Jimmy McGill that would be standing up and saying, I'm not good for you. That's not who Jimmy McGill is in this show right now. And I, so I do think he's going to say yes. And I do think we're going to end up at the same law firm and it is going to, we're not sharing the law firm, but under the same roof. And I, I do think it's going to be a product of all of this sort of circling each other and Jimmy pulling the worst parts of Kim out and Kim not wanting to deny Jimmy the truest parts of Jimmy. And so trying to, what I said, split the baby. And what do you end up with? You end up with a dead baby, Rob. Oh, no. We don't want that. No. Yeah, we don't want that. We definitely don't want that. So here we are. You never want to do a half baby. <laughs> There's no half babies. Only full babies. Only full babies. And then they grow up Trust to be me. full Kayleys. Yeah. Except then, then they never grow up past age seven. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where. But what I'm saying ultimately is this, this whole story, I think, between Kim and Jimmy has been about Jimmy kind of pulling the, 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 the Jimmy part of Kim out of Kim, uh, even as he's being supportive to her and good for her in a lot of ways. Uh, he pulls out that part of her that's most like him. She doesn't want to deny him being who he is. She doesn't want to keep him out of the pool, but he's not trying to keep her away from being who she is. He's bringing out the worst in her. And I think that that's the difficult thing that they're, that's the dance that they're, that they're circling. And I think that that dance has to end up with them under the same roof, sharing services like this before they, I think before either character sees how bad they are for each other uh, or, or how good they are for each other, if they can fix that. All right, let's take another question from Joe P on Twitter. Don't you agree that it's enough of the Genesis RE, Saul and Mike, and I guess by proxy Genesis Gene, uh, that they need to start assuming who they really are? Are there enough building blocks in place, do you feel like, for Mike and Jimmy for this to really start to go into towards that breaking bad world yeah and i think that that's the question that's on a lot of people's mind i think a lot of people are wondering how many seasons does the show have are we gonna continue to slow the roll to mike and uh being a full measure mike and uh jimmy being saul goodman uh are we gonna do this i mean by the end of this episode jimmy's recording his voicemail like i said as jimmy mcgill not as james m mcgill so that's an evolution he's got the the sort of clothing of saul goodman but not the persona uh and is this enough? Like Joe is asking, I think is, is what we've got now where he's got the clothing, he's got the confidence. He knows he's not right for Davison, Maine. He knows what the pinky ring represents to him. He knows what he wants to do as a legal practitioner. Shouldn't he just be Saul Goodman at this point? Uh, And I think that we haven't seen the kind of like the last season built to what we thought was, and we assumed was the sort of genesis, if you will, the the Genesis incident of Saul, like the beginning of Saul Goodman, where he's driving away at the end of the season with a smile on his face, and he's Saul Goodman. This this season's art and posters have presented a much different kind of picture. It's Jimmy walking uphill on the street. Uh, we know they kind of retconned the beginning of the season so that he turned around and went back and actually met with the people. He ultimately ends up taking the job, which is we didn't think what happened at the end of last season. So they have slowed their role a little bit. Uh, and as this course of this season has gone on, they've picked it up and they've given Jimmy the clothing of Saul Goodman. They've given Mike his first kind of interactions with the real criminal underworld that he gets involved with in the Breaking Bad universe. I just don't think we've seen the big incidents that push them away. And I do wonder if that big incident for Jimmy doesn't come as a result of what's happening with Kim. 
they go under the same roof, uh, something big happens between the two of them, or they develop very different opposing styles. And Jimmy, through the severing of the relationship with Kim, becomes Saul Goodman, emerges from that cocoon. Uh, and so I think that we could get Saul from that. And if, if that's the case, we're not there yet. Uh, and with Mike, I think we both agree and correct me if I'm wrong on this with you, Rob, we don't really know where Mike is headed with visiting or viewing or just observing the Salamancas, but he's certainly headed in that more, seems like more in that direction where he's going to be more the Mike from Breaking Bad, the full measure Mike and not the half measure Mike. To me, I feel like that this is an in-between seasons question. I think it's hard to answer this week to week where it's like, okay, hey, we're seven episodes of the season two. Now it's time to start to move in this direction. Like, I think we need to finish seeing what story the creators are telling us and Vince Gilligan wants to tell us here in season two before we can really answer that question about where the show moves on after season two. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that... We have to keep in mind, too, we've talked about this a little bit on this podcast. When they were shooting, writing, editing this episode, they weren't, they didn't know they were renewed for a third season, uh, or at least it wasn't announced. Uh, that was announced a couple of weeks ago. They may have known that it was, it was a negotiation, that it was probably a formality, but we don't know what they knew about the end date of their season or show uh, while they were putting this, these episodes in the can. So I don't think we're going to get that that big breach or that big kind of move uh, by the end of this season, because I, I just unless they felt like they're going to fire all their bullets, which I don't think that they did. I think they know they're going to get at least one more season after this one uh, while they're shooting it uh, to, to even if it's only one more season, they're going to get another one to wrap the show up. And so I just don't see that happening. I think you're right. It's more of a between seasons question. Did we do enough so that this next season is going to be this? I just don't think the characters are there yet. I think at this point with Jimmy, we've seen him just be so many different kind of half versions of what he ultimately becomes that we haven't seen the thing that pushes him to become that full version of it. Uh, and we saw him sort of, uh, you know, masquerading around as a respectable attorney and that he couldn't even sleep, Rob. Like he couldn't mm -hmm. even sleep in that corporate housing. He just didn't fit. The cup holder didn't work for him. Uh, and so, by the way, I wonder if he's going to have to pay for that damage. Um, I, anyway, <laughs> I just, question. I don't know how that, but, but we know that this hasn't worked for him. And so we know he's trying on all these different suits, both literally and metaphorically. He hasn't found the right one yet that ultimately fits, even though I think we leave this episode with him a lot more confident in terms of what he wants to be. He was a different guy walking back into that office with that Coco Bolo desk in the back of that nail salon. So he's even, we even saw him meeting with those kids, Rob, he's going to film a commercial like this is happening he's definitely going to film his own commercial with some of the money he's got now uh, that's what that meeting he was taking at the nail salon was about with those kids those are his filmmakers and it's going to happen what that's going to look like it's going to look like a lot more like Saul Goodman than than James M. McGill I think yeah and just one quick thing on the desk. What do you think that the desk represents that, you know, he talked about the Coco Bolo desk all the way back from season one. He finally gets the desk. He's leaving the law firm. He pays $7,000 to have the desk. He gets a U-Haul truck and gets Omar to help him schlep the desk into the back of the nail salon. What's so important about the desk? I, I, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like the brass ring, the Coco Bolo ring. It's like the thing that he wanted, the, the material thing that he had his eye on to represent success success or to represent some sort of trapping of the lifestyle that he thought maybe he could get. Uh, and that's something that he wanted. So 
even when he didn't want to change anything up in Davis and Maine, he asked for that desk. He got the desk. Uh, he took the desk with him. I think this is representative of just that sort of material success that he was seeking at the beginning of the show. It's part of it. He also keeps a Davis and Maine mug on top of that. And I think that mug is certainly meant to represent that he had, that's part of him. It's not all of him. It's not who he is at his core, but that's part of him. He could have succeeded there uh, if he wasn't, you know, a square peg. Uh, he was smart enough to. He made the right legal claims. We saw him have some very valid legal points. We know that he, he's capable of doing those things. He's just not willing to or able to, uh, even if he has the requisite skills necessary. So I think the desk represents, like, I can be whoever I want to be. I can have the Coco Bolo desk and still work out of the back of a nail salon uh, now that I'm in this world world where I can be whoever I want. I don't have to be somebody fake anymore. I don't have to be James M. McGill. I don't have to represent that on the phone. I can be me. I can be Jimmy McGill, attorney at law. And this is what I am. All right, Antonio. Well, lots of fun talking about this episode. What's the hashtag here? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. How do you spell? Do you, is the word Genesis is just Genesis. G-E-N-E-S-I-S. I don't know. <laughs> well, what about Genesis Gene? Genesis Gene. Let's go with that. I like that. Yeah, let's go with that. Let's go with Genesis Gene. Genesis Gene. A very colorful conversation once again, Antonio. Oh, always bringing the color into it, Rob. Yes. Yes. All right. So uh, very fun stuff. Of course, only three episodes left and only two episodes left until the Better Call Saul finale. <laughs> only two episodes left, Rob. Oh, yes. AMC. What, what, what do we do without you? AMC. Boy, really uh, so much going on on the AMC right now between Better Call Saul and the Walking Dead finale coming up this Sunday and then Fear the Walking Dead. Of course, uh, we'll cover all of those things here on Post Show Recaps. Uh, very exciting uh, couple of weeks for the AMC. Yeah, this is it. It, man this is i bet some big stuff's gonna go down on this uh on this walking dead finale rob i have a feeling they're gonna try to break the internet we'll see i think so yeah. so a lot of stuff going on uh, of course we love to hear from you guys in the comments on posterrecaps.com of these better call Saul discussions uh always fun to hear what we've sort of like pontificated about here uh in this podcast and what you guys are thinking on your own as well as what you're thinking about what we're saying also, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes, or you can go ahead and subscribe to our main feed, Post Show Recaps, in your favorite podcatcher. And we do appreciate those comments and star ratings on iTunes as well. Yes, we love them. All right, that, that's my sustenance, Rob. <laughs> you can follow Antonio on Twitter. He's at AC Mazzaro. That's two Zs and one R. I am at Rob Sestrino. Antonio, anything else? No, I just, I mean, I, I love that montage. I didn't, I didn't say it enough. I thought that montage was fantastic. Dennis Coffey's Scorpio was playing in the background, a very famous song. It was the first, he was the first ever white performer on Soul Train and he performed that song, Rob. It's a big deal. Uh, and it's just a great, great kind of song to accompany that. So I really, really love the way that that was presented. And no, no matter if the show seems to be kind of taking its time or spinning its wheels, it's still a gorgeous show. Uh, that is presenting us with sequences like that. Most shows on TV just aren't doing that. So I just can't say enough about how well made this show is. And I love talking about it with you. Uh, I love it too, Antonio. Thank you. That means a lot. Love you, Bay. Yeah. You had me. You had me already. You had, oh, sweet. Just say yes, Rob. Just yeah. say yes then. Uh, and also just a quick shout out to the unsung hero of the Better Call Saul podcast, Scott St. Pierre, who edits these shows. We record them on Monday night. It gets late. Uh, he gets them out to you guys. So uh, thanks again to Scott. Yep. Looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say in the comments on postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Bye.